welcome to another episode of Turn Left. I am your host, Indiana's own Dana Black, coming to you live. Yes, all the way live from Black Pearl Studios, where we talk about Indiana politics from the left side of things. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, I have two amazing, beautiful women on your screen. I was supposed to have Jason uh, Shemansky on. Unfortunately, he lost his mother this week, and so he will not be joining us. So I wanted to make sure I left his logo up and his information up so that you know where he's running. I will reschedule, but please send your, your, your thoughts and prayers over to his family to make sure that they're getting the love that they need. I know losing a parent is never, ever easy. And I, I, all I got is love for him. And, um, obviously, like I said, losing a parent and your mom, just, it just, it ain't easy. So I, I love to you, Jay. And uh, we'll talk to you real soon. But you know me. Now I got a rant. I got a couple things. So it, because Jason couldn't join us tonight, you know, I have a Rolodex full of amazing women. I do. I can just call them and say, hey, what you doing in 10 minutes? <laughs> and um, because one of those happens to be my girlfriend, I ain't call her up and she doesn't, she doesn't really get to say no without a guilt trip over the weekend. <laughs> Y'all give it up to the honorable Nicole Bolden, Bloomington city clerk, who's going to join me in my rant today. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Hey Dana, how are you? I'm good. So thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yay. Appreciate it. Yay. Mm -hmm. Thanks for helping a sister <laughs> out. You know, real talk. Thanks for helping a sister out. All right, let's get started. CBS okay. news reports, Virginia Thomas, also known as Jenny, a conservative yeah. activist married to the Supreme court justice, Clarence Thomas repeatedly pressed the white house chief of staff, Mark Meadows to pursue unrelenting efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election in an urgent text exchange. Those, te those messages, part of 29 total messages obtained reveal an extraordinary pipeline between Virginia Thomas, who goes by Jenny and then president <clears throat> 45 top 45's top aides, during a period when Trump and his allies were vowing to go to the Supreme Court in an effort to subvert the election results. Nicole, you wanted to talk about this one. You told me uh. flat out you wanted to talk about this one. You and I have had conversations about homegirl. What say you? I have been talking about Jenny Thomas for years. Um, I think she is one of the most problematic figures that we can see in Washington politics who's not directly elected or serving the public. She is- uh, She makes you physically I uncomfortable. Mean, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, and it just amazes me because we've spent a lot of time this week as a country talking about a different couple who, yes, it was interesting, it was titillating, but the impact of their actions is not going to be felt by most of us the impact of the actions of Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas, will be felt. They are both directly involved in efforts to subvert our elections. And I don't understand why more people are not talking about it and why we're not constantly bringing it up. I wanna hear it every morning at the top of the news hour. I wanna hear what they're gonna do about the Supreme Court Justice's code of ethics. I want to hear if Clarence Thomas is finally going to recuse himself. I want to find out if Ginny Thomas is actually going to follow the traditional role of spouses and refrain from engaging in political activities. They are the only couple in the Supreme Court who actually continually to actively engage in political activities and they won't step aside. They won't step aside. And and he wasn't even reporting the finances properly. He had reported that she had received money from operatives and he said oh, she didn't earn any money. So he's, I mean, he's been lying probably since Anita Hill was testifying. <laughs> oh, and let's not talk about Anita Hill without mentioning the fact that Jenny Thomas called her at like 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday to ask her to apologize for having testified about his sexual harassment. That is crazy. Who are you going to call at 7.30 on a Saturday morning? I don't pick up the phone when people call me at 7.30 on Saturday morning unless it's my family. And even then, I'm kind of like, why are you calling me? I'm awake, 
but I'm not going to take the phone call. But how about but the caucasity of the phone call? How about the caucasity? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's a bold move. And to call somebody and say, I want you to apologize for this. She had nothing to apologize for. She said she was sexually harassed. She testified about it. He was, you know, voted onto the Supreme Court anyway. And she suffered for years afterward as a result of her testimony. Why is she apologizing to you? Honey, but see, that's, that is the, um, you know, the epitome of, of, of white privilege and the caucasity of it all in that this woman was harassed and she was willing to put all her business out on front street to say, hey, I endured this. Y'all need to know who this person is. Now we see all of these years later, he is still behaving in an unethical way. The family is, is behaving in an unethical way. He's making rulings on situations that are harmful to our country and you're right and are directly related to her activities as well which is i think one of the things that people keep missing he actually voted about um the national archives he voted to keep trump's papers secret absolutely well, maybe it was directly because some of those secrets involved his wife hello and he knew that and, and to pretend like you're not laying your head next to somebody, we all know what pillow talk is. Everybody has those private conversations with their mate. And I know he knows. And you can't sit up here and tell me he doesn't. I know he knew. Hey, even if he doesn't know, I mean, even if they are absolutely no. on point and keeping their life separate, which I don't believe, but even if they were, the appearance of impropriety is enough that he should recuse himself. And everybody who's gone to law school or been around a judge or an attorney understands that that phrase means you just don't want to look bad. Exactly. Well, but apparently out. he doesn't care. and They feel like they're untouchable. And considering, you know, we're still waiting for real charges on a 45 after a federal judge said, hey, it looks like dude was doing some illegal stuff. We're, we're still not seeing the repercussions from bad behavior. Instead, we've been, uh, rightfully so, there's a, been a, a, an, an exorbitant amount of attention on Ukraine, the slap heard around the world, you know, all of these other things. But here we have our Supreme Court. We have, that's what you called it, this slap heard around the world. Did I? <laughs> I don't know why you making that face. That's what you called it. But, 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 and, 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 and it's just crazy, right? It's, it's, it's crazy that we are at a point where, you know, these institutions that traditionally have left people of color, particularly women and women of color, um, at, at arm's length, and we have not been able to, you know, always break those ceilings. You have these people in here who are doing and behaving in a way that is harmful for to our entire nation. All right, that's enough of them too. And I'm not gonna talk about the slap heard around the world. Although I will say, I understand. Some people need to be slapped, but that is, I don't condone violence. So I don't think anybody needs to be slapped. And I think a lot of people, you know what? I'm not even gonna wait. Right, I'm just saying, I'll be talking the... about the Thomas family. Exactly. That's really what matters. I know that. So uh, listen, I am not a hundred percent pure, and I have awful thoughts that come through my brain, especially when I run across awful people. So, listen, stuff happens. All right. Vox reports on Tuesday, President Joe Biden signed into law a bill that classifies lynching as a federal hate crime punishable by up to 30 years in prison. Though Biden emphasized the significance of the legislation during a ceremony and praised its broad support, the bill's path to approval has been fraught. It has taken more than 100 years and 200 attempts for proponents to achieve victory. The Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, named after the 14-year-old who was kidnapped, brutally beaten, and shot by a mob of white men in Mississippi in 1955 before they threw him into a river, allows an act to be prosecuted as lynching when a person conspires to commit a hate crime that results in death, serious bodily injury, and other serious harms. Y'all, why did it, Nicole, why did it take so long? Why did it take so long to get this bill passed and signed? Why, why, why? I, I can't answer that question. What? I, I really can't. I, I look back and I think about the way that Emmett Till's case impacted even my family to this day are still feeling the effects of what happened to Emmett Till. Why did it take so long? Maybe because lynchings are still going on. Oh. Mm. 
That's what a George you know, Floyd was. We what call it? them something else. Philandra Castillo, wasn't that a lynching? When, when you call I, those I lynchings? I think we could sit and go back and forth and give names back and forth. I, I don't know why it took so long. I'm glad it happened. It's just sad that it took until 2022 to be signed into law. I think what's and sad still, to, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep cutting you off. Oh, no, no, no. That's it. I'm going to say, the thing I think that is sad is that people didn't view this or the fact that we want to make anti-lynching or lynching a federal hate crime, they didn't want to do that. They didn't see the necessity of saying, hey, if you are targeting someone for a specific reason and a specific immutable trait, then you will be charged with a hate crime. Have we been so desensitized to violence and, and, and attacking marginalized communities that we, we are like, we're going to turn a blind eye to this thing? I question, like. Well, I was just going to say, you know, Carla pointed out that there's a great deal, that there's systemic racism involved here as well. So I don't want to ignore that. But you also have to think about the way that people approach the law, because one of the defaults is we don't want to legislate how people think. Right. Well, I understand. And so, and there's the argument of a crime is a crime, whether somebody dies as a result of hatred or they die out of you know, whatever else, it, it just, it happened. And we can't say it's a hate crime just because it happened to somebody who happened to be part of a marginalized community. I'm not saying that's the best argument. It's just an argument that people make about hate crimes. But, well, isn't there Regardless. like a, you know, people don't like the term social engineering, but social engineering for a positive reason is a good thing. Desegregation was social engineering. Voting down miscegenation uh, laws, I almost couldn't say it, oh. is social engineering. We're normalizing things that weren't normal before. So we are definitely social engineering. I think passing these hate crime laws is, does, does another thing, not just puts people in prison, but it, it, it changes the mindset of the, of the individuals in the community to say, hey, maybe this ain't a cool thing. And it's funny that you would mention anti-miscegenation laws because our own United States Senator was talking about how maybe that should be up to the states to decide, right? Lord, we, we know how states, so we know how states. He walked work. it back <laughs> and you know, he walked it back, but it's still a bit of a problem. So I, I don't know if having the laws there will necessarily change people's minds but it sure as heck will protect people who need protection. All right. Well, listen, I have one more issue I'm going to talk about, but I want to bring on my guest because I, I know that she has some insight into the couple of topics that we've been talking about. Let me tell you guys something. This young lady is a rising star. She is fearless, um, and she's one of my favorite young people in the entire state. Uh, I am not endorsing anyone in this particular race because there are four amazing women running in Senate District 46. However... This young lady is a superstar. I can't wait for you guys to hear from her and hear her story. Y'all running in State Senate District 46, my girl, Carla Lopez Owens. Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dana. Good good evening. Yeah, it's, it's the evening time now. It's so right? good to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. And thank you for that kind introduction. I'm your biggest fan. So oh, oh, to so hear those words from you, I'm just like, ah, <laughs> I'm just so excited to be here. I love it. So do you have any, I also know that you're an attorney and you are working in the prosecutor's office. One of my favorite prosecutors, Ryan Mears, who is on the ballot. Y'all need to support him. Did I get a plug in? <laughs> Talk about, tell us how you are feeling about um, the, the president signing the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. Um, you know, I was listening to the conversation between you and Nicole, and I just can't help but think that it's because of systemic racism, right? You were asking, why did it take so long for something to be enacted um, when it's, it's common sense, you know, it's common sense to the communities that experience this um, every other day, whether it's microaggressions or outright racism. Um, and it also goes to show, I think it's also a reflection of how broken our systems are. And you know, like we start thinking about just the lack of, uh, there's just this, this disconnect between our elected officials and the people that they're supposed to be representing. Because if we had people that actually understood these issues, it would have been like um, a no brainer, you know, it would have passed a long time ago. Absolutely. So those are my thoughts in regards to that particular question. Yeah. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, just because, you know, Nick and I can go for uh, a lifetime talking about politics because we're working on that. Uh, do you have anything for Miss Jenny? 
Jenny Thomas. Uh, pardon? Is that your attempt to be like Forrest Gump? Yes, Jenny. Jenny. <laughs> that, that's a horrible, I, I, horrible. Listen, I'm not an actress. I'm too authentic to <laughs> fake at being somebody else. <laughs> I know you've been Don't keeping try. up with it. <laughs> Sorry, Carly. No, no, it's no problem. And um, I don't have that much to say other than, again, it's a reflection of the system and just like how different things are um, approached, you know, by the media and what's given attention and what's not given attention. And I, I, I don't know, I, I feel like it goes back to who controls the narrative. And when you have people who are funding these, our state elected officials, um, what's going to come out is a reflection of, um, yeah, you know, who's like lobbying, who's funding yes. them, yes. who has been, who, who have purchased these politicians. All right. So. I get it. All right. So I'm going to talk about something right here in Indiana. You know me. I like to go border to border, lake to river, my kind of thing. Uh, Northwest Indiana Times reports, Attorney General Todd Rakita signed Indiana into a multi-state lawsuit Tuesday challenging a federal requirement that all passengers and crew wear face masks on all forms of shared transportation available to the general public. The, the lawsuit jointly filed by Rakita and 20 other Republican state attorney generals demand that uh, the transportation mask mandate immediately be terminated by judicial order. They claim the face mask requirement, which applies to airplanes, trains, buses, school buses, and similarly shared conveyances, exceeds the statutory authority of the Centers for Disease Control, which Rakita said only is permitted to employ disease prevention measures that are distinctly limited in time, scope, and subject matter. Y'all, I, I, I don't, first of all, this is where my rant really comes in. Todd Rakita is so focused on everything outside of these 92 counties. I can't, when is he going to focus on the things that matter to Hoosiers on a regular basis? Now look, if these businesses want to have mask mandates and the federal government, the CDC is backing them up, I thought you guys were about limited government, small government, whatever, whatever. But this is about public safety. We see, we see the new variant is growing and greater cases are out there. And only 65% of Americans are fully vaccinated. Yes, hospitalizations have gone down. Yes, deaths have gone down. But it ain't over. So if you if you're in a large space and there's a potential of, you know, 45 percent of the people that you're on this this in this space with that you have to take transportation, public transportation for that, you could somehow be infected or someone you love can be infected. Let this thing stand until we're all the way through with it. And the fact that you're spending all of your energy and oh, by the way, Indiana tax dollars. Y'all know how I feel about that. Indiana tax dollars on this thing. I just think he is not focused in the right direction. Do y'all have anything that y'all want to add to that? I would just say that it shows, you know, this very this lack of concern for people's well-being. I hate how politicized the whole issue has been made and just how the mishandling of this virus is just it shocks me, you know, it's again, I go back to the statistics and to the you know, common sense. And when the numbers, like you were saying, Dana, yes, hospitalizations are going down, but that doesn't mean, you know, like it's getting worse, you know, like the variants and um, our, some of our most vulnerable populations not getting this information, not getting the vaccinations because of the mistrust that exists between uh, these communities and local government. And it's just, I could say a lot of things, you said earlier, let's keep it um, out of positive. love. So, pardon? Out of love? <laughs> um, out of respect, you know, out of to be diplomatic. I got you. Not, not so much out of love, but definitely to be diplomatic. Um, and so, you know, I would just encourage anyone who's listening to continue sp spreading this information about the importance of getting vaccinated and. Um, encouraging our our folks to go to trusted individuals like their doctors you know and get this information from people that actually know what they're talking about absolutely um, as opposed to getting um, carried away by what's in the media or what these misguided 
um, elected officials are putting out there. I so that's it. what I would say about that. All right. Nick, you want to jump in there? You know, I, I appreciate you talking about how people are not showing concern for each other. I, I came across an email that I had written or that I was an email exchange I was a part of back at the start of the pandemic. And we were trying to navigate what we were going to do next. And somebody said, well, you know, there's no way that it's going to last more than a month. Like if we shut down for two months or two weeks and then everything else, we'll be back to normal within a month. And so right now, when I'm listening to people talk about how to transition, where they're going to wear a mask, where they're not going to wear masks, and I keep going back to the, if we had done what we were supposed to do in the beginning, we might not still be talking about this in the same way. There might be hundreds of thousands of people who are still alive because we had done things correctly. So to see somebody who's doing something, and let's be real, for political gain, Hello. because that's what it comes down to. Right then I'm, I, I don't know if I'm sad or disgusted or angry or just done. Yeah. Pick something for me. Cause I'll, I'll own it. Yeah. At that point. I, I just, but I mean, you is, know, governor Holcomb can't run again. And you know, you know, the, the rumor mill, the rumor mills are out there. Um, attorney general Tyra Keita or Senator Mike Braun, or they're all thinking about running for governor. And if you ask me, um, that is, is either one of those would be terrible. One doesn't understand uh, questions that are being asked to him, and the other one is wasting money. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. All right. That's my rant. Uh, yeah. I do have a call to action. We do know that uh, Governor Holcomb vetoed the anti-trans bill, um, barring transgender, transgender girls from participating in sports. However, on May 24th, the legislature is gathering at the state house to discuss whether or not to override that veto. This is our call to action. All of my groups, all of my organizations who are against that legislation and, and are, are, are comfortable with the fact that uh, our governor vetoed that bill, this is a call to action. We need to mobilize, get energized, and get down to the state house on May 24th. Do what you gotta do. If you have to work, I understand, because that's what I gotta do. But let's let's get that call to action going. Call your friends, call your homies. Make sure y'all know May 24th. Yes. Can I add another date in there as a reminder for folks? Yes. April 4th. I, I was gonna get to the that. Last day that you can register to vote for the primary. My, so she always we're only a few days. What? Look at you stealing my thunder. <laughs> All right, y'all. Listen. Okay, now let's get to the candidate. Carla, yeah. you out here, you in Marion County making it happen. Tell the people who you are and where you come from. Nicole, thank you so much for bringing that up. Uh, voter registration is so important. And before I kind of introduce myself, we, we were actually registering people to vote here this past weekend. And we'll be hosting another registration drive on Saturday, Saturday morning in communities where we know that, um, you know, they're often excluded and often overlooked. So minorities, black, brown, immigrants, um, we'll be there. I'm really excited, but that's as a side note. And yes, April 4th, uh, make sure that your registration is up to date. Um, love it. And the primary, May 3rd. Love it, love it. The primary, yeah, for Marion County. And very briefly, you know, just to let you guys know who I am, for those of you who I haven't personally met, I am Carla Lopez Owens, and I am originally from Mexico, um, in Cuernavaca, that's where I was born. I came to the United States when I was eight years old. And you'll have to excuse my voice. I feel like I'm getting allergies. It sounds like I'm sick, but I'm really not sick, I promise. Um, so I apologize for that. If it breaks, I have some water. I may take um, a second to pause and drink it. That's what's but up. I'd like to say, I came to the United States when I was eight years old. And we, we were in North Carolina for a little bit, but then we moved to um, Indianapolis. My aunt was living here. She was working as a housekeeper in a hotel and my mom, she called my mom. She said, Hey, come, there's job. There's a job here. Come. And so my mom started working as a housekeeper. It was called signature Inn at the time. I don't think that they're in business anymore. And so, um, let's see what else I kind of moved all over the place. I've been all over Marion County because we were always looking for the jobs mm -hmm. and we were never in a place long enough to stay to, to complete a full year of school. So I went to a different school every single year wow. of my life. And that, you know, the instability and the chaos and everything that that kind of introduced into my life, 
I feel like we had to learn how to deal with it in a positive way, right? Mm -hmm. Like how to make those circumstances and, and make it so that something good comes from it. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I love talking to people. I love meeting, learning about new people and um, listening to their concerns. And I also think that's why I love my job so much at the Marion County Prosecutor's Office as the Director of Community Outreach because I get to do that every day. Um, but, you know, before I talk about that, I went to IUPUI for undergrad. I graduated from SPIA, from the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. What's up? And, and then I went on to IU McKinney and I graduated from law school there. And then I took the bar, um, I failed, and then I took it again. And then eventually I passed. So it doesn't matter how many times you take something, it doesn't matter how many times you fail, as long as you keep showing up, I think that's what's important. And that's what I tell all the students that I work with, all the young people that, um, you know, like I'm meeting, because that's one of the questions I get the most, like what's one piece of advice that you would have for people who wanna get in politics, in the law, keep showing up. Um, not, not despite the odds being against you, but knowing, knowing that the odds are gonna be against you. Right. Because otherwise, you know, what's, what's the point, you know, of, of trying anything? It's gonna be hard, but, Eventually, that's how we make progress. Um, and so, yeah, and like now I, I've been a community volunteer, a community activist for almost 10, no, over 10 years now. I am a co-founding member of the Indiana Undocumented Youth Alliance. And I've just been really involved in the immigrant uh, Latino community, working class community. That's where I come from. And that's where my passion stems from is I was helping people when I was young, I was interpreting for my mom, for our neighbors. And that's why I got into politics. That's why I got into this race because I want to continue helping people. And I, you know, like this campaign is the most visible, visible vehicle that I've had to kind of showcase, not showcase, but like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with show, showcase. Elevating the issues <laughs> that I've been working um, you know, advocating for over the last 10 years. So regardless of what happens with this race, win or lose, you know, I was doing this work five years ago, I'll be doing it five years from now, irregardless of the hat that you're wearing, because I think that's what a true public servant does. Um, if you're in it for the right reasons, right? So yeah, that's in a nutshell kind of who I am. And see, either you've how... been watching every turn left, or you are like, chiseling out pieces of my brain because that sounded like one of my speeches. I'm telling you, sis, I feel all of that. I feel all of that. You are definitely an authentic young woman who is doing amazing things. One of the things that I have noticed um, throughout the entire state is that there is a lack of engagement um, in our Latino community. You obviously are Keyed in, and keyed in on, and are aware of many of the issues that are impacting our our Latino community in a way that the rest of us just we we just don't know, right? We just not in there, and a lot of times we overlook it. Just like you know, black folks used to say, Democrats don't show up till it's time to vote. Mm. Explain to us the importance of of engaging the community. And, and understanding the needs of that community and recognizing that there's more than to, to, to what you guys are doing over there and, and in your communities than immigration. Yeah, and I, you know, kind of to um, speak to one of the points that you made, the disengagement, it's not just the Latino community that I'm finding is disengaged. Mm. It's also, it's also the, the young community, right? Mm. The um, people that look like me, uh, progressive individuals, there's just a lot of apathy and a lot of, um, yeah, disengagement because, you know, I would almost say that the party has not done enough to build those bridges. Um, and if they have, like, they're obviously not authentic, they're not working. And I don't think that um, vo genuine voices are being listened to. Um, but to one of the other points that you were making, between 2010 and 2020, the Latino population in Marion County grew by 51%. Ooh. And mind you guys, these are only the people that are actually reporting in the census, right? right. Not the people that 
see anyone that looks official as a government looks like a government official and they're like nah i want nothing to do with that and i you know like i blame the i blame a lot of things but i trump you know like the trump administration and putting in the citizenship question that's something that like really instilled a lot of fear into these communities and that goes to the mistrust that exists between these underrepresented folks and government agencies right there's centuries of, of baggage that there has just like not been um, an intentional genuine effort to bridge these like bridge these these issues and that's why I think the work you know that grassroots organizers people from the Indiana Latino Democratic Caucus um, and just people who are doing these things like on their own I think that's why it's so important and that's why it's, it's so important to have people that look like our communities in positions of power and i know like there's there's these plans these strategy plans but we're not moving fast enough the by you know like in the next five ten years latinos are going to be the biggest voting block in marion county and what has the party done to inst like to instill uh trust and to um foster relationships. I haven't seen any indication of that. And it's frustrating, you know, but I talk about these things very candidly because I care about the party. I want to bring, it. you know, it. I want to bring um, people that look like me, normalize the process by which people that look like us enter into politics. And instead of like this infighting within our own party, like how we're on the same fucking team, you know, sorry, we're on the same <laughs> How can we... <laughs> Nicole, I don't know. Were you gonna say something? I I was gonna say. Um, by the way, the whole potty mouth thing, I'm the worst at it. I'm surprised to have cursed the blue streak at this point. But I I was just going to say, I think that there have been efforts made, but I think there's a certain passiveness passivity to it, which is, oh, we've got these things if people come and ask us, and sometimes people forget you have to go to where people are. Yes. And yes. so that direct outreach and that action is missing. And I think that's what people say. And I, I don't know that I would say that people haven't been active. It's just people are busy and they've got a lot of other things to worry about. So they can't get engaged in the way that we normally, that we would normally hope for or expect. There are 20 million distractions going on and you're looking going, okay, do I focus here or here or here or here? Mm -hmm. So it, it's frustrating because we do have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we are seeing the damage that is being done to our democracy as a whole and to particular communities who are bearing the brunt of that damage. Well, and the other thing I so, would add to that is, you know, it's usually the same people doing the work, right? And you cannot- yeah, over and over yeah. and over. So we cannot wear out Carla, you know, and get, or Elise Schrock, you know, in the Latino community and say, you do everything, right? Or, you know, Nick, you down in, in Monroe County and all the things that you do, and of course, y'all know me, it's the same people, but it has to be sustained, right? Because in order to build, in my opinion, in order to build trust, you have to keep showing up. Like, like Carla said, you gotta keep, you can't just do it for a cycle. You can't just do it for a couple of months before an election. You have to do it in December or April or in the off year, you have to do it all of the time so that people know that you're consistent and your word is bond. And if you're not doing it it's consistently, like it's and, and sustain and you got to make it sustainable, right? That was one of the things that you know I one of the things that why I enjoyed being the deputy chair of engagement while while I was because that was a whole four years that I got to like works, you know, and sustain the work. And everyone knew if I was in your community, whichever it was, rural, black, Latino, young people, I went everywhere. I was trying to engage and it can't just be one person. It has to be so many more. It has to be a system. Absolutely. So, you know, one yeah. of the things I like to ask candidates when they come on, um, there are always three um, issues 
when they're doing their elevator speech or whatever it is, um, that when they're out knocking on doors and they're communicating with the community. And by the way, if you like what Carla is talking about, I have included her donate link on the Facebook page. So if you like, and you want to support her, yes, I put everybody's link up there. It doesn't mean I am endorsing any candidate, but I put their donation link up there. That way, if you like who she is and what she's talking about, feel free to click on her link and donate to her campaign. All right. So there are usually a couple things y'all want to, you know, you highlight, give us that conversation about what you're talking about when you're, when you're knocking on doors. One of the things that I always almost talk about is, you know, they, they see me and they ask, so wait, you're the candidate you're running for office. And then, you know, I get mixed reactions to that. Like the young people are excited. They're in disbelief. They can't believe that someone that looks like them is um you know like the candidate i was with my friend josh canvassing the other day and we ran into two young um high school students 17 and 19 i think and they were like wait so you're the you're the candidate you know because usually it's the white man you know that's the candidate and so that's been so exciting to me talking about representation and the lack of representation that exists in local politics and at the state level as well. So I talk about how my campaign is focused on bringing new engagement, new, a new like new ideas, a new approach. And I look at the number, like I, I look at our volunteers and I see this diversity, like this is what Marion County looks like. This is what the state, you know, like we're a diverse state and yeah. it's so exciting. And like, I just feel so hopeful um, seeing how many people have come out, like they've never registered, they've never voted before, they've never cam canvassed or campaigned for a candidate in the past, but they see our campaign and it resonates with them. And that's been really exciting for me. Oh, I love it. New voices uh, are always good. Pardon? New voices are always good. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so representation and I, I talk about how the numbers that I just gave you guys in, in regards to how fast the Latino community is growing and how we have virtually no representation in local and state politics. And by voting for our campaign, what people, what folks are essentially doing is helping us get a voice mm. in spaces that matter. And that's been, you know, like very powerful conversations that I've been having with people. Um, I also talk about my commitment to the working class people. I feel like when I have conversations with folks, they, they feel abandoned, right, by the party, by politics, by politicians, mm -hmm. by state representatives. And they see, I share my experience growing up in poverty. I share how um, my mom was a janitor for 15 years. She didn't make more than $27,000. And she raised three girls on this budget. You know, like people resonate with that. And again, like we need people in politics and who are our representatives that have shared experiences. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another another thing that I talk about and accessibility, right? Um, there's a lot of overlaps in when I have these conversations, but the accessibility to to quality education, like you know, reinvesting in our public schools. What you got? What you Medicare, Medicare for all, you know, and I'm a firm, firm believer that the government is supposed to serve us, you know, not just you don't come to us like just when you need something. You're supposed to serve us year round. Um, and so that's something else that I talk about and accessibility to government as well, right. because how difficult, you know, I'm, I'm an attorney. I was trained in access to public records act and knowing like, I know what's public. I know what the public is, has access to. And it's, it, it's so hard for me, you know, like it's, if it's so hard for me to get a hold of some of these things like information, documents, memos, imagine your average citizen that wants to know what's going on. Like if I'm having these huge challenges and burdens trying to get this information that I know is public right. and is rightfully like I'm supposed to know it, that just, that's, that's gotta stop. We need to come up with a better system, make laws more accessible so that people are able to better comply with them um, and start, you know, I, I feel like that's also why we need someone who was trained in the creation of laws to be in the state Senate, because that's all you're gonna, you know, the legislative branch, that's all you do. And the lack of attorneys that are there, um, you know, that, that also blows my mind. So those are some of the things that I talk about. There's 
a lot, but to start off, that's kind of what no, no, I no. love. Go ahead. I love how open you are about your own history and how it impacts those people that you want to serve as well. Being able to talk about growing up in poverty is so important because a lot of times our elected officials are living in a different demographic than the people they are representing. You know, like I live in a town where the majority of the residents are renters, but for the elected officials in the city, all of them are homeowners. Mm. I mean, that's a big difference. Absolutely. You know, and especially when the rents are so very high and housing prices being what they are, and the average uh, community member can't buy a house, but we still have people who are talking about wanting to have single family homes and density of housing being a bad thing. So it is, I appreciate the fact that you're able to talk about that and articulate it and how it will make a difference for people who you want to represent. So these are not, thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much for that. And what I also talk to people about is that these are not abstract abstract concepts for me. Right. I grew up uh, hungry. I grew up not my mom having to pick between feeding us and paying the rent. And that's another point, you know, like accessibility to quality to quality homes, to quality a, a good quality of life. And it's just not there, you know, like 15 hours, $15 an hour, that's not going to cut it. That's not a living wage. We need to demand beyond $15 an hour, like a living wage, because otherwise, um, it, you know, it's common sense. Higher wages improve people's quality of lives, which improves everything all around us. And I feel like no one's talking about, well, like, you know, as my mama used to say, common sense ain't so common, honey. So, <laughs> and you know, and the, the thing to go back to, you know, uh, uh, broadening, you know, the state house, you know, different lived experiences change, changes the conversation as well. So when you have, you know, people talking about limiting what is being taught in schools and then talking about financial penalties for those things, that speaks to what you were saying in the reinvestment in education. That is the exact opposite of reinvestment in education. And when you consider, and we've talked about it before on the show, the fact that we have Rose Holman in Indiana and we have Purdue in Indiana, two of the strongest engineering and tech schools in the nation, and we lose Intel to Ohio because we don't have the same number of educated people at the ready that Ohio has. And it starts at pre-K. It starts at K through 12 prepping our young people for those careers, why don't they have the, why don't they correlate reinvesting, right, in our public education and the growing of our economy? And I think that you would, you know, add that aspect uh, to the state house. Thank you. I, I think I'm very unapologetic about where I'm coming from. And on the note of reinvesting in public schools, I think that I, you know, I feel like I, I know that I stand out for my other competitors in, in many ways. But I am the only candidate in this race that has openly that openly criticizes the charter school system mm. and how little we're vetting these uh, fly-by-night um, institutions, right? And just like the the harm that these these money-making machines like That's are having in our neighborhoods, in our communities, it's destroying the fabric of our, our of our identity. And I think no, you know, like again, no one's talking openly about these things. So yes, I'm very unapologetic about where I'm coming from because it's my lived experience. I'm a product of public schools, and but for all the resources that I was able to, um, you know, muster get together, to yeah. I would have never been able to learn English. I would have never been able to believe that I could go on to achieve higher education, go to law school. So I have a lot of um, appreciation for the public school system. Absolutely. And you know, that speaks to, you talked about those charter schools, those fly-by-night schools, those online schools. Instead of Ty Rikita fighting mask mandates, he needs to be trying to go get our money back. They still owe us a, a, a few million dollars. And I'm being facetious when I say that they owe us millions of dollars taking our money and, and not, and, and who loses our students the lose, the students, our students lose every time and the future of our state loses, uh, you know, Nick and trace I talk the about money, you know, you have to trace the money and see 
who were the found like who was funding some of these campaigns and you'll see that it was these fly by night charter schools that were funding a lot of these republican individuals absolutely but again no one's talking about the corruption and the cronyism but and you know what i love that you talked about access to information that we are we are no longer an agrarian uh nation we are no longer in the industrial age this is the information age this is where you can receive information at the drop of a hat but people don't know how to get it what why i know that you're an attorney and you you learned about these things but why do you see and in your words this is an important issue for the community at large you mean as far as far as um having access to this information yes um, I think it's by design and I don't, I think that it's very intentional. Like the, the, the way that the reasons why people don't have access to the information that rightfully belongs to them. Um, I think that these institutions make it really hard to get access to, to, to this information because they know how damning it is. Mm. And that's where I feel like accountability also comes in and they don't want to be held accountable Ooh. so they make excuses they and it's all about power too they see oh you know like they give an individual i'll give you an example like i you know i was working i was working at a law firm before i started working at the prosecutor's office and i was working with individuals who had been victims of violent crimes in the united states and often that entailed having to get the police report, the probable cause affidavit, these documents that are, you know, public. They're public. Right. And yeah. I would go to the city county building and I would try to seek these documents. And when I would go in there, like with my hair up, you know, I don't know, just looking like a young student that, you know, didn't know what I was doing. When I didn't look professional, I guess, I would just get shooed off. I was I, I would be told, oh, we don't have this information. You have to go to this other person. I would get the runaround, mm. right? But then when I would go in there and I would have my, I don't know, like the documents that um demonstrate like, that you're an attorney. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The it was just like a complete 180. The treatment is completely different because they know that I know what the rights are, right? And then accountability comes into the picture. So I feel like when agencies know that there's going to be someone to hold them accountable, they're more likely to um, cooperate, which shouldn't be the case. Everyone should be able to have access to some of this information. Um, Well, and you're facing kind of a triple whammy because you're a woman, you're Latina, and you appear very young. I have no idea how old you are. You could be in your 80s. I'm 30. But, okay. See, and you actually, you look younger than you are. So I understand that when you come in, people say, oh, you know, just a kid, you know, dismiss it, or just a woman or a Latina woman, I don't have to answer her questions. Sometimes I don't think it's deliberate. I work in city government, you know, I'm an elected official in my town. I, I've seen public record records requests come in on a regular basis. Sometimes we go through stretches where we get several every day. And I think there is a defensive posture, because I think after a while, people think that someone's out to get them. And my feeling is if you give people the information up front and just lay it all out there, one, tell them where to find it, make it easy and make it not only transparent, but apparent mm. so that they get to the information easily. And that way they're not going to think that you're doing something behind their back. They already can see it. You want to see what I you know, what our time looked like last week, what we're working on, you want to see our emails, go for it. You know, they're there, or at least we can get to them. So it's, I think it's hard for people and they, they do have that discounting of, oh, you don't know, you don't need to know. And you have to be persistent and you have to be able to know the system. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Absolutely. Anybody should be able to walk into a government building and say, I would like to see this, this, and this and walk out that same day with those documents. Absolutely, I mean, this and, this is a citizen government, hello. Yeah, Nicole, and you know, to your point earlier, that I look, I look very young when I go into these spaces, it's not just about my appearance, like what I have also encountered is the racism, the classism, yes. the, yes. 
yeah, just like all these things. It's not just a triple whammy, you know, that me being an immigrant, it's just like all these things against working against me. So to go into these spaces. But they shouldn't work against you at all. No, they and we shouldn't. We all know that. But, but, this, and yet... but this is, you know, this is human nature. You know, this is what we do. And I wish we weren't like that. You know, I, I talk about, you know, you know, y'all, y'all know me, I'm a kumbaya, let's, let's make it all about love. But the reality is, and y'all have heard me say this, humans are going to human. They cannot help themselves. So I want to switch, switch subjects a little bit because, you know, you, you held up a sign and you said you were Medicare for all. I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a second, because I do believe that Medicare for all should be a thing because I don't understand why you got to lose your house to keep your life. It just doesn't make sense to me, but devil's advocate. And I'm coming at you because I know that you are an immigrant. And I also know that you represent a lot of immigrants to making and making sure that they have access to quality health care because it's a human right. When you hear those folks talking about, oh, we're going to give free health care to immigrants who don't you know, talk about how you dispel. I, I know what I say. But talk about how you dispel those those silly arguments. Sorry, I guess I wasn't playing devil's advocate, was I? <laughs> I mean, uh, no, not really. I what I would say to that argument or to that point is to look at statistics and to look at the amount of money we actually save when people get quality health care year-round um, as opposed to ignoring the symptoms ignoring their sickness like their illnesses and then showing up in the emergency room uh suddenly right because i there's uh, in immigration you know what i've learned is undocumented immigrants don't have the same rights as u.s citizens mm -hmm. and it's the the same we don't have the same or they don't have the same constitutional rights as a u.s citizen would and um, you know, like I, I'll give you an example of when individuals only go to the emergency room when they have something that's like really wrong with them, by law, the emergency room cannot turn that individual away, you know, but then you think about what would have happened if these people would have um, access to mm -hmm. quality health care for preventative, you know, preventative measures, mm -hmm. the number, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's just like one example that I would give you is when people receive quality health care and when there's a trust, you know, between the medical um, establishment. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. The medical establishment and these communities, then there, you see the difference in numbers and money mm -hmm. and it's, simple math. I don't have that information in front of me, but that's one example I would give you. And see, that's, and that's it. Cause you know, they always, there's always that group of people worried that somebody is going to get something and it means it's less for me. And that, that lack of community and that lack of humanity for people who are, come from a different space, um, is still very astonishing to me when you consider that there are no two humans on the planet who are exactly alike. We're all different in, in a, in a, a myriad of ways. Something else I want to talk to you about because, you know, as a young, because you're a millennial, right? You're millennial? Yes. yes. Millennials are, they are serious about this climate change because they're like, yo, I still want to live. I want to keep, I want to live to 82, you know, and we know that Indiana is really, really, really bad when it comes to the environment. Talk about what it means for you um, as a candidate who's trying to, to get in the state house um, and 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 our need to address climate change in Indiana. I would relate it back to my personal experience growing up in poverty. We often didn't have the choice to, um, you know, like go out to eat or when we did, you know, like we would get these reusable little containers and immigrant mothers save everything. So when I go to my mom's house, you know, for example, is I just, I see everything that she uses is recycled and she gets so creative with fixing things in her house. Um, so every day is Earth Day for Mexican and immigrant mothers. Um, but then trying it. to, pardon? I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that's one, one thing that I would bring up that I think we're, 
we recycle a lot in, in immigrant communities because by, by default, you know, by necessity is kind of what we have to do. And I think back on some of the like more recent efforts that I've been doing. So I've been riding my bike to work. I'm a very big advocate again for public transportation. And so my neighbor, who's also my coworker, who's also my friend, we've been very, um, he's, you know, he rides his bike everywhere. So we've been very intentional about, mm. um, you know, like our carbon footprint and how, how we're leaving this um, state. I'm also a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for almost eight years, I think. And that's another way, you know, like, so in my personal life and my upbringing, these are things that I hold very dear and near to my heart. But I also think that we have to keep the, or like the, the no, no, like the CEOs, the CEOs of these big corporations, oh. fast fashion, you know, we have to keep these individuals accountable as well, because it, it can't just, it's not on all on us. Right. And we get, there's a lot of propaganda that you see, oh, you know, stop, here's, here are some ways that you can reduce your, your carbon footprint. Yeah, but what about Tyson? What about all these corporations that, you know, capitalism, you, yeah. you talk about yeah. capitalism and it's yeah. all about making money. Yeah. So yes, we can have this conversation, but who's, you know, who's holding these other individuals accountable? for their fair share you know coca-cola is the number one the the biggest contributor to uh, polluting our planets like the, the plastic from their products and no one i i don't know i maybe people are talking about this but no one is elevating these platforms mm. so yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you but... did. Because again, I want, you know, the whole goal of, of Turn Left is, is to give people an idea of who you are. So that's why I don't give you any questions before you come on. We have an organic conversation and I love it. And you're like, you know, I, which I already knew you were going to be fantastic anyway. So I do have one last question that's pertaining to your campaign. And if you win the election, if you win and you win the general, what is the first piece of legislation you want to work on when you are at org day and you are in the general assembly honestly i think i would work on the in-state tuition bill mm. i think there's a lot of really great state senators that have already been working on house bills senate bills for the past again 10 15 years either that or driver license cards for um people who qualify for it because these are things that our communities have been fighting for for decades it wasn't until 2005 or 6 that indiana stopped giving out driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants and that is just you know it's a shame it's a terrible thing that that happened you it's like this ripple effect of terrible things that were happening after after that but I would say the driver's cards or in-state tuition, you know, I'm a co-founding member of the Indiana Undocumented Youth Alliance. And because our elected officials have failed to act, that's why one of the biggest things that we're doing with the Alliance is um, the scholarship and funding these scholarships for people who don't have access to in-state tuition. Um, and yeah, just reinvesting in our community. I think we, you know, we want to be productive members of society, but we need to be able to um, see ourselves represented in politics and positions of power so that so that we can feel encouraged, you know, like that we actually do belong here and feel part of this fabric of society. I love um, it. I love it. You do belong. You do belong. You belong more than you know. Uh, Indiana's own Dana Black turn left. We are talking to Carla Lopez running in Senate District 46. It's a competitive, competitive, competitive primary. All women, two women of color. You gotta love it. All right. Um, now, it is the last Thursday of Women's History Month. Uh, Carla, I'm gonna let you go first. What woman do you want to highlight, dead or alive, for Women's History Month on turn left? Um, Shirley Chisholm. She was the first African-American. She's actually, her parents are from Trinidad and yeah, Trinidad. So she's also a child of immigrants. Um, she was the first black candidate to run for office. I mean, for, um, for president back in the eighties, she was a, um, Congresswoman in Washington, DC, and she's amazing. She like, I, one of my favorite quotes that she said is, um, if they don't, have a seat for you at the table, bring your own chair. And 
So when I filed for, you know, really quickly, I just, I have this pin that I have of hers and I just wear that anywhere that um, I know that I'm gonna be feeling like I'm an outsider and she gives me hope and inspiration and um, yeah, just the courage to keep going forward because she didn't ask anybody when she ran for presidency, she didn't ask anybody. She realized there was a need for a voice for her people in the community and she stood up and did it, you know? Why do you need permission from anybody to do that? So I appreciate her her efforts and her her legacy, and she's someone that I really um, look up to. Man, you are definitely cut from that cloth. Nicole, what woman uh, do you want to highlight? I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's such a difficult question because I'm sitting there and I've got like my head just ex- seized up with all the women I want to talk about. <laughs> you know, they're amazing women at the it's, local level. It's only an hour show, Nicole. On the national level. Well, I don't care. I'm going to take my time. You know who I'm going to talk about tonight because she's been on my mind since earlier this week. I want to talk about Maya Angelou. Hey. And, you know, she's one of my favorite authors. I love her books. I love her poetry. I've been trying to track down one of the poems she wrote that I read, and I just, I cannot catch the rhythm of the words in my head to remember exactly which poem it was. But earlier this week, um, I was listening to somebody to talk, and they they referenced a quote by Mary Angelo, and I paused and I was like, "Who is Mary?" You know, and and my friends and I, we all kind of looked at each other and we said, "Did she say Mary? Did she mean Maya?" So I just want to stress, it is Maya Angelo, and she was amazing. She was just she makes my heart lift up when I read her work. And phenomenal woman will always be one of my favorite pieces of writing. So it was one of those things that helped shape me as a young woman. And still we rise. um, And still we rise. Uh, Okay, so I've been able to do this every week uh, on the show. And uh, last week I actually highlighted uh, my dear close personal friends. But I'm going to do something just way off off the chart. I am going to highlight my girlfriend. Y'all may not know her, okay? But she was the first black elected uh, in the city, uh, citywide office in Bloomington. So she's a history maker that way. She was the absolute first LGBTQ plus woman of color elected in the entire state of Indiana. The first woman ever. She is a for real, for real, for real history maker. Right, right? And she's so humble. She just wants to do the work. How do I know? I, I kick it with her all the time and we, we banter. She's, and she about the only one that can pretty much check me these days. <laughs> Cause all the rest of them be like, look, so I'm going to highlight today the honorable Nicole Bolden on the last uh, Thursday of the month as uh, a woman that you guys need to get to know. You know, Carla said something earlier. It's not, you know, it, yeah, we're all going to fall down, but it's what you do when you get back up. And I've watched her go through some things that she may or may not have liked, but she keeps plugging away at it. She's been consistent and she keeps showing up and she can churn through some books. So don't play. She can churn through some books. And, and I cannot, because it's my show, I get to do more than one. Um, I'm going to shout out to Catherine Black, uh, one of the most amazing humans ever to walk the planet. You guys didn't get a chance to know her. She left here uh, in, in April, May of 2001. My mother, she decided she couldn't have children. She couldn't give birth herself. So she adopted two children. I am one of those. She gave me an amazing foundation. She was born in 1929 in Forest, Mississippi, broke as all get out, never had shoes and picked cotton. So, and, and did all of that. She was, she was so poor that when she had children, she would not allow us to walk barefoot in the house because that was reminiscent for her of not having any money. So I, I have, I can't walk barefoot, right? It's just how I raised. But if she had had half the opportunities that I had been given in life, she would have been so much more. And I applaud her for, you know, buying a home, raising two kids. Both of us went to college at different points to be able to get through what she went through as a black woman in Forest, Mississippi during the depression era. That was a bad mamma jamma. She was 5'3", 110 pounds, but carried a big stick. All right, Catherine Black and Nicole Bolden, those are my ladies. All right, Carla, tell the people where they can find you. 
Thank you. You can add me on Facebook. I will um, accept your friend request. I like, I love making new friends, but my website is www.klo4change.com. Um, and are you having yeah. any fundraisers? I know you said you had the event coming up Saturday morning. Any fundraisers, anything anybody needs to know about? Um, we're having a birthday canvassing event at Garfield Park this Saturday after the uh, voter registration drive. And it's supposed to rain a little bit, but we, we, we're still really excited. We've got over 20 people that have signed up. So again, the engagement and the excitement, I think is what is just so encouraging to me. So come Garfield Park, um, we'll be there at 2 p.m. I love it, so I love it. I, I wish all the ladies in District 46 the best of luck. I, I When you have, Four women who are more than capable stepping up and putting their names on the ballot to run for office, to represent their communities at, at, from different angles, from different points of view, and, and, and are really saying, hey, our voices matter, not being deterred, not being pushed aside. I applaud you. I applaud all the ladies that are in that. that, that people ask me all the time, who, who am I rooting for? I said, uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. I just think it's great. You guys got a chance to listen to them and you can decide for yourself who you want to vote for. Not that I have a vote anyway. Indiana's on Dana Black. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. I, I love doing this. All right. Now, we talked about voter registration, but early voting will be underway the next time we see each other. So if you haven't tuned in, go to my Spotify page, go to my YouTube page, and watch the candidates that I've had on thus far. I will continue to have more candidates on. And to my candidates who are looking to have social media presence, you want a video done, come holler at your girl. Indiana's on Dana Black. Scan the barcode that you see right there. And for all my people on uh, Spotify, Dana at indianazone.com. Scan the barcode. That's my contact information. And allow me to come and have. Now, this is a service. It's not free, but I'm affordable. Especially for my down ballot candidates, I know you're not raising two hundred thousand dollars for for a county council seat. But if you need some some online presence and a video shot, reach out to Indiana's own Black Pro Studios, and that's what we do. I'm 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 trying to help every candidate I can with whatever I got to get to flip some seats. All right, Indiana's own Dana Black. I will holler at y'all next week because you know what? I love what I'm doing. This is a pretty good gig I got. All right, y'all. Peace. Turn Left is the property of Black Pearl IT Solutions. Executive producer, Indiana's own Dana Black. Music by www.binsound.com.